Okay, I guess I'll go ahead and start. Um, my name is Chris Jenkins, and uh, this is the seminar on medical education missions. So if that's what you're looking for, you're in the right place. Um, honestly, you may hear this from other speakers, too. I've got more to say than I can. So there's a certain segment here with a bunch of pictures I'm going to kind of fly through just to warn you in advance. I'm not trying to irritate you. But I want to you know, not spend too much time on the photos or the pictures of places we work and a little more on the concepts. A little bit of background about myself and the organization that I work with. All right, come on in. No, you're fine. Um, in his Image, Inc., you see in his Image International up here, but in his Image, Inc. is a family medicine residency training program based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, of which I'm a faculty member. And it was begun with the idea of training Christian doctors to see medicine as a ministry opportunity. And part of the original vision was, first of all, to train Christian doctors for medical ministry and then to prepare them for either domestic missions or international missions, whichever way the Lord was leading them in particular. And uh, as we've gone forward, um, we have done short-term medical trips. Uh, we've done consultations, assisting long-term missionaries, etc. But we've also done family medicine residency uh, uh, program development and starting residency programs in other countries. And I'll talk about that as we go along. Um, we've become a uh, medical mission sending agency, uh, although we're very small at that. We have a very small number of what we call partners. Uh, we actually do send out our own missionaries, and we do disaster relief. So that's a little bit of the background to the group I'm with. Uh, this next slide might seem a little bit odd that God still, quote-unquote, uses medical missions, but after World War II, uh, medical missions was somewhat de-emphasized by uh, mission-sending agencies, uh, mainline denominational mission agencies, and others because of the cost and, uh, you know, end of colonial era, handing over uh, facilities to governments in some cases and to national churches in other cases. It felt it was too expensive to, uh, in, in both money and human resources and uh, felt it wasn't really assisting uh, as much as it could in maybe church planning. But medical missions is kind of being rediscovered. Not that it ever went away. I don't mean to imply that. But the emphasis is coming back as, is, as the value of it's being recognized. People are always going to have health care needs. Uh, it's always going to be a way that we can serve people in need, show Christ's compassion, and demonstrate the life of Christ, build relationships, and through those relationships uh, share our faith and hopefully introduce people to Christ uh, through our presence with them. There are many kinds of medical missions, um, short and long-term, medical and surgical, uh, all, you know, hospitals, clinics, community health, all kinds of special projects. This is by no means an exhaustive list, just a few examples of kinds of medical services that could be done, and medical education, which I have there at the very bottom and which is what I'm going to focus on in this seminar. In his image, medical education and missions, uh, you all heard the expression, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach him a fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. Give him a pond, he'll have something to fish out of. And so we're taking uh, the, the second and third points there as kind of our mandate. We want to teach people to do what we do in this country, uh, both ed in terms of educating doctors and taking care of patients, so that they can do it in their own uh, setting, in their own culture, their own country, their own village. And, uh, and, and throughout this, I by, and by no means implying that clinical missions, medical missions, uh, are not important. They have their role, just like medical education missions has their role. Clinical missions meet pressing needs. They give relief to suffering people. Uh, it does just demonstrate the compassion and the, and the um, care of Christ, the love of Christ. Team members uh, usually derive a great deal of satisfaction from serving people through these uh, outreaches, whether they're long or short term. Uh, there are some potential pitfalls you've got to be aware of if you're, if you're going to lead a mission team to do clinical work. Don't, you don't want to be seen as competing with the local doctors. You don't want to be in, inadvertently insulting them by saying your standard of care is inadequate, so we're going to come and do it for you. You want to involve the local doctors if you're going to do a medical mission trip or whether short or long-term mis uh, medical mission. And the, probably the greatest weakness, in my opinion, of, of a purely medical trip or mission is that when you leave, the service ends. Uh, the benefit ends with the, with the uh, departure of the missionary. Medical education missions, again, short and long term, you pa you're passing on your knowledge to local doctors so they can do what you would do if you were there for a lifetime. And they will see far more patients in their lifetime of service in their own culture than you or I ever would on a one week or one month or even a career of medical missions in their country. 
it, it helps raise the level of health in the community when you raise the level of care that's being given by training the doctors. Uh, you develop, and in the process of doing this teaching, you develop relationships with national doctors as both colleagues and friends, which gives you the opportunity to share your faith, to be a witness, to, or to disciple them if they're already believers. So um, long-term medical education missions has a lot to, to, to uh, be said for it. And I'm going to say that there's actually a necessity to be a teacher if you're, if you're doing medical work. And the, and the question I would ask is, what do you want to leave behind when you finish your task, whether it's short or long term? Second uh, Timothy 2.2, 2, uh, Paul speaking to Timothy, what you have heard from me, and then he says a few other things, and trust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. And this is a known principle of discipleship. Uh, it's a known uh, uh, factor or uh, element of, of, of raising up young Christians to, to follow Christ and to, and to discover the roles that God wants them to have. Uh, but it also applies to your work. If you're going to take the time to uh, use a professional skill to be a door opener or a service to a people that you want to go to, if you want to have more of an impact than just your direct contact, you need to be teaching people. Um, this is a spiritual pl- uh, principle that applies to both discipleship and your field of service, in our case, healthcare. So we want to be involved with medical education and not just medical service. And it's a way to prolong, uh, uh, to provide long lasting benefit and change, like I already said. And what you want to guard against um, is having a 30 year career short term mission work. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we think of a short-term mission trip, again, the benefit ends when the team leaves if there's no education going on. Well, 30 years is a long time in our thinking, but it's not a long time in a community's thinking or the life of a community. And if you haven't really done much to leave or to impart what you've been doing to the people that you've been working with, it's basically a 30-year short-term mission trip because the benefit leaves when you leave and you've left nothing behind. And um, that's not to say that teaching doesn't go on just by, I don't mean osmosis, I'm not saying that in a negative way, but by, by your presence. You know, people pick up things from us, from you as a Christian, just by working with you and watching you. Uh, so that I'm not saying there's no benefit to that, don't get me wrong, but an intentional educational program of passing on what you know is going to have a much greater effect than just being the one who does the patient care yourself. And again, 30 years seems like a long time, but when you think of dealing with communities that have centuries-long histories, maybe millennial histories, 30 years is not very long. And thinking forward is not very long either. So no matter what God calls you to do, my recommendation is to include teaching as part of your work, part of your ministry. And that would include teaching anybody who's involved in delivering health care with you. Uh, it could be your doctors, it could be nurses, medical technicians, labs, staff, administrator, and the patients. And I'll talk more about patients in a little bit. But again, it's a key to discipleship. Uh, some of you may have uh, heard of David Van Rieken's little book or booklet, Christian Medical Practice in Today's Changing World Culture. It's actually about 30 years old, but it's still applicable today, still relevant today uh, with the basic principles he's talking about. And I want to just relate one little story he gives. He, and I forget the exact missionary agency he's talking about, but this mission agency had, um, I believe it was the Philippines, a school, a hospital, a seminary in different locations in the country. They noticed that each, each of those institutions was about equally fruitful in producing churches in the, air, in the neighborhood, neighboring area. And, uh, it, and again, it didn't matter whether it was a school or the hospital or the seminary. But the thing they all have in common was presence. They have a long-term presence, which enabled the Christian workers to demonstrate the life of Christ, to share their faith verbally when the opportunity arose, and, and then to disciple those who responded. So... Medical education gives you a long-term presence. Most medical education doesn't take place in a week, other than maybe a little seminar on uh, some specific skill, which we also do as well. Uh, medical education to prepare a doctor or a nurse or other technicians uh, takes time, and that gives you time to be with the people you're working among and to have um, a witness. All right. Um, this is – whoops, I think I went too far – Sorry. Well, maybe I've been going too far the other way now. I'll just let it roll in. Sorry about that. Um, 
this is a fairly unique time in history. You know, there's a lot of unique times in history, but this is a unique time as well. There's a lot of change taking place. In the last uh, 20 years, very, some very significant changes have taken place in the former Soviet Union, China opening up to the rest of the world. More recently, we're seeing the Muslim world reawaken, so to speak. Uh, economic changes are taking place in our world right now, globally. Uh, but these changes create opportunities to serve, to meet needs, and to, to be alert to God's leading you to respond to those needs. And for us as physician, physicians, this is very, very true. It gives us opportunities to uh, minister to our colleagues, and it doesn't matter what specialty. I'm a family physician, and uh, the last, I'd say, 15, 20 years have been a tremendous time for family doctors to be involved in medical education missions. Um, our program started in 1989. I believe that was the beginning year. I wasn't there at the beginning, but I think it was 1989. And uh, as a Christian program, training Christian doctors, uh, early to mid-'90s, we started doing short-term med- uh, mission trips. And we realized as we went to Central Asia, former Soviet republics, China, that these countries were looking for help to start family medicine residency programs. Uh, the World Health Organization has been promoting family medicine in a very strong way, at least since uh, 1978, when they uh, had a world convention in, in Alma-Ati, Kazakhstan, and came out with the Alma-Ata Declaration saying that all people should have access to primary care. And over the decades that have come uh, passed since then, a lot of countries have bought into that idea and have accepted that idea. So when we went to Central Asia in the middle 1990s, they were just starting to, to look at how to do family medicine training. Same thing in China when we went there late 80s, <clears throat> pardon me, late 90s. And um, those were situations that we couldn't have dreamed up on ourselves, that we are family physicians, we want to do missions, and hey, these guys that are not Christians, Muslims, uh, Marxists, Buddhists in Mongolia, and, and other types of faiths and belief systems wanted us to come and help. And so we did, and we've gone to a lot of those places uh, at their invitation and uh, uh, been able to help them medically, but also have had a chance to witness spiritually. And so opportunities pop up uh, that we want to take advantage of, and as a physician, whatever your specialty, you're going to have opportunities that God's going to create for you. We like to use this phrase. This comes from the burning bush, uh, Moses being asked by God, what is in your hand? He said, well, my shepherd's rod. And he said, throw it down, turn into a serpent, and he changed water into blood and all these different things, and it became the rod of the Lord. You know, it was uh, Moses' shepherd rod became the rod of the Lord to help deliver the people from Egypt. So basically that was uh, representative of his skill as a shepherd, and God took his skills and used him to lead the people out of Egypt. Well, he's going to take our skills if we'll hand them to him and show us where we can lead another people out of Egypt, figuratively speaking, and build the kingdom of God. So family medicine is new and needed in many places. Uh, other specialties are always in demand. And um, we want to recognize these windows of opportunity. Um, and something about windows of opportunity, windows open and windows close. They don't stay the same. You know, as you follow the Lord uh, in obedience, he's going to lead you to opportunities to serve him. But don't assume they're going to stay open all the time. You don't want to procrastinate too much and hang back and not go through a window that the Lord opens for you because they will close. When we first started going to Central Asia in the mid-90s and then into the early 2000s, we were able to do uh, evangelistic camps for medical students and doctors. And uh, through the process of doing medical conferences in medical schools and hospitals, we uh, found Christian doctors and medical students. They'd come up and say, oh, I think you're Christians, aren't you? Yeah, we are. Well, I am too. Oh, great. Nice to meet you. And we, we'd see Christian medical fellowships begin to form. And uh, a medical student over here would come and say, I'm a Christian. And one over here would say, I'm a Christian. And they'd say, oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. You were a Christian. I'm in your class, and I didn't know you were a Christian. And so they, were begin- they would get together and start forming Christian medical fellowships. And with them... Uh, they would, we would do these camps. They would invite their medical student friends, their, and the doctors would invite them, and we'd have a whole week-long camp, which was evangelistic. We did that for a number of years. Now we would not be able to do that. The laws have changed in almost all the Central Asian countries so that even the local Christians can't do those public camps um, or retreats. I mean, they can, do, they can be Christians. They can have their meetings in their churches. The Muslims can have their meetings in their mosques. But they're being told you can't have public meetings <clears throat> Uh, uh, by law. So we're, we're still able to go to those countries, we still have relationships in those countries, and we're still able to serve in those countries, but we, we're not as free as we used to be. So the window has at least narrowed in Central Asia for us. 
Um, so you want, my point is, when God opens a window, don't just assume it's going to be open forever. If he's opening it and showing you to go through it, take it when you can, because it'll close eventually, possibly, or at least narrow. <clears throat> and, and Jesus basically said this, the same thing in John 9, 4. He said, work while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. Sometimes there are circumstances under which you're not able to work, you know, either whether it's persecution or financial or whatever. Uh, so go when you can. And, um, but don't panic either. If you're following the Lord, if he's leading you, he'll get you to the right place at the right time. Uh, but just don't lag behind. Um, <clears throat> there's a bit of a health gap out there. There's a, there's a dual problem. Uh, one is an out-of-balance allocation of resources, and one is uh, a strategic issue. And uh, the out-of-balance uh, allocation is this. 90% of mission resources go to, not to the already evangelized world. And uh, the other 10% goes to the unevangelized part of the world, which would include the 1040 window, which I think most of you are familiar with, and I'll talk about in a second, and other parts of the world that don't have their own church and don't have their own um, infrastructure to reach their own people. So... Uh, the question here is, which end of the stick would you lift? If you saw ten people lifting a stick and nine were on one end and one was on the other, which end would you go to? Well, we've made it a decision to go to the end that only one person is lifting or helping lift, which is primarily the unreached part of the world. A little bit of a caveat to this. You know, it's, it's not totally unexpected or, or out, of, out of whack to think that more, the majority proportion, the majority of, of, of resources would go to the already reached part of the world. If you have a lot of Christians and there's a lot of need for education or, or discipleship and this, that, and the other, then resources are going to be directed to that. Uh, and that's going to take more than where there are no seminaries, there are no disciples, there are no churches, and so you have fewer resources being poured in. Nevertheless, this is still, I think, out of balance. The strategic approach issue is uh, concerning curative care versus education. Um, the majority of money that goes into medicine goes to curative care, uh, which doesn't do a whole lot to improve the overall health of a population. It does meet people's needs, of course. It does meet if you if you've got a pneumonia and you're about to die, you want that. That's curative care. You want the antibiotic. You want someone to take care of you. Um, but if you have a population where 25% uh, uh, of the kids die before five, and the parents don't know that it's the water they're giving their kids to drink, or uh, the food that they're serving is, is uh, infect or causing infections, then you want to educate the patient population and you want to educate the local health care providers to meet that need and not just cure them as they come in with their acute cases of diarrhea and miss a bunch. So I think the strategic approach is a little bit out of balance in that we should be tilting uh, or balancing that with more of a focus on medical education that has been, that has been done to this point. And, again, our emphasis is on the 1040 window, and I think most of you know all this, 10 degrees north to 40 degrees north, uh, very little witness in most of these places, although some, there are some exceptions. And healthcare people are looking for answers medically and spiritually just like everybody else, and usually they're receptive to their colleagues who are willing to come in and help. So there's all kinds of methods to doing med medical missions, clinics, hospitals, and, again, both short-term and long-term uh, ways of going about it. Uh, the the, the uh, limit is, uh, or the sky is the limit, and uh, whatever you, God leads you to do medically, uh, you uh, you can find a place to to do it uh, overseas where there's a need that will benefit from your skill. Um, this is a short-term list, but uh, I don't want to read the whole list here. But there's all kinds of ways, both short and long-term medical missions can be carried out. You just have to be creative. The point I want to make about patients is don't forget to educate the community as well as the individual in your health care. Uh, I gave a talk to some missionaries in Africa last February, and um, uh, along the lines of you know a 30-year short-term mission career, um, if you don't tell your patients, if the patients are not led to understand or taught to understand what their diseases are, why they are serious, then when you go, they'll probably stop treating them the way you instructed them to treat. For example, hypertension. Uh, I was in Malawi a year and a half ago. There were about 425 doctors in the whole country, a, patient, a population of about 13 to 15 million, somewhere, like, somewhere in that range. The majority of them rarely, if ever, see doctors. Probably most of them won't see a doctor. But when they do, it may be out of the blue. They come in because they've had a, an accident. Maybe they've cut themselves, broken arm, and they want some acute care. 
And while, you're, while they're there, oh, by the way, you have high blood pressure, and they don't even know what that is. So here, take these medications, uh, one a day every month, uh, or every day for the rest of your life, and you can pick up a new supply every month, and it costs this much. And they, uh, you know, they're pretty much a subsistence salary or income. Maybe it costs a couple of dollars a month. And their, their laceration that they came in for heals up, and, and the pill is making them feel a little bit funny and uh, maybe, maybe lethargic, maybe some sexual dysfunction, depending on the category you gave to them. And it's a little bit expensive, and the first prescription runs out, and they say, they talk to their family, do you think it's worth me uh, refilling this? It's a little bit expensive. It makes me feel bad, and uh, I'm not even sure what it does. I feel fine because, you know, hypertension is a so-called silent killer. And they stop because they don't really understand why they're taking the medication. So patient education is very important, uh, if, again, if you want to have a lasting effect on the community. So some way or somehow... Uh, there needs to be education of the patients if, if, if our uh, services is going to have a lasting effect. And uh, anyway, I'll skip my next little story. Um, and this is a long process. It doesn't happen with one individual. It doesn't even necessarily happen with one generation. It has, it's a multi-generational educational task if we want long-lasting change. And uh, so I'm going to, in a second here, give a few pictures of countries we've worked in, uh, but just... Keep in mind flexibility and adaptability. Uh, every country is different. Every situation is different politically or economically. The social environment, religious environment, healthcare system, how it's set up, what its history is, what people expect from their healthcare providers, what the physicians expect to give. Um, so you need to be flexible when you talk about doing medical education in a given place. Uh, and change is taking place. Countries are developing. And so the medical system today is not what it was 15 years ago when we first went to Central Asia, and it's not what it is going to be 15 years from now. This constant change uh, is taking place, and we need to be ad adaptable. Um, so I'm not putting down the law here or a law when I uh, give examples from our own personal experience. Changing concept of medicine, emissions. So this, these are our goals. Uh, basically glorify God through meeting, uh, meeting of human need, changing societies through medicine and witness, planting fellowships of believers in medical communities, people who are truly disciples of Christ and who, as they grow and mature, end up having their own vision of what God wants them to do with their skills. And, and again, our, our emphasis is on the 1040 window. These are some of the countries we've worked in. Um, We have found, and again, it's going to de uh, depend on the situation, that if we offer help, people tend to accept. I say generally or usually because it's not always the case. But if we have something to offer that they need, people tend to accept it. Uh, relationships are key to opening doors. Um, but when people have felt needs, uh, uh, they will respond to people who say they can help. Uh, when I... One of the earlier trips I, I took to Kazakhstan, we went to a city in the southern part of the country, and the government had just decided that general practice would become part of the medical system. And uh, I, we, we introduced ourselves at a medical school, and uh, one of the associate deans or assistant deans over general practice in a new department introduced me to the provincial minister of health, not the national one, but the provincial one. And uh, he said to me, uh, Dr. Jenkins, I've been told by our Minister of Health, the national one, that I am supposed to train 1,800 general practitioners in the next year and a half. <laughs> we don't really know what a general practitioner is, <coughs> let alone how to train them. Can you help me? And unfortunately, I wasn't really able to respond by sending somebody to stay there for the next year or two or three. Uh, just for frame of reference, I don't know how many of you are family doctors, but uh, an average-sized family medicine residency program in this country would be maybe eight people per class, graduating eight every three, you know, a year. Uh, ours is ten per class, which would be a little bigger than average. And the, the biggest one I'm aware of is in Fort Worth has 25 per class, so maybe something bigger. But 1,800 in a year and a half is an incredible number. So he was feeling some pressure. He had a personal felt need to carry out this order from the Minister of Health and didn't know how to go about it. And 
We did come back a year later. They had opened up 52 clinics in which they put a pediatrician, an internal medicine doctor, and an obstetrician gynecologist to, to learn from each other and teach each other. So they opened up 52 clinics. By the time we came back one year later, all but two of them had already closed because the care was inadequate, the patients realized it, and the doctors were terrified. You know, a pediatrician, I'm supposed to take care of a pregnant lady. I don't have the first idea how to do that. And so they, they closed them down, and it was a failure, and it gave family medicine a bad name, both in the medical community and among the patients. So, but my point here is people have needs in the medical community, and uh, we, we try to meet those needs by helping them accomplish their goals, of edu- their educational goals in medicine. And uh, if we have something to offer, they'll accept it generally. And again, the situations are changing place. Some of those needs that we were meeting, like in China, for example, are past. When we first started going to China, we went. I took we took our first trip to China as a medical group in 1999 as an exploratory trip to see if there was anything in China we could do to help. And at that time, uh, the Ministry Ministry of Health had not formally declared that family medicine would be part of their system. So we gave a few talks. We spent a month, and uh, no one knew what we were talking about. Well. Two months later, the Ministry of Health said, we're going to have it. And so the next year, people were inviting us to come to explain what the Minister of Health told them to do. And, uh, and so we spent the last, what, 12 or 13 years now in various places, in Beijing and other places, helping them clarify what they want to do in, with family medicine. And I don't claim that we're the only ones, but we've had a, a role in that. Well, they've pretty much decided now what they want, what their model of family medicine is going to be and what their training program is going to be. Uh, two years ago, they had maybe 40 pilot programs scattered across the country that they were looking at, and, and it was, there were three-year residency, postgraduate medical school residency programs uh, that they were looking at as models. That was two years ago. As of April of this year, they had 620. So two years ago, they decided, we know what we want now. Okay, medical schools, okay, hospitals with departments of general practice, start your programs. We're ready to go. And they have responded, and they're actually, they're actually doing it. But it doesn't, it's not as uh, dramatic or um, abrupt as it might seem. They, they have actually spent 20 years looking at this, 10 years where it was a formal commitment, and another 10 years before that to, 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 to say, do we, to ask the question, discuss the question, do we even want it in our country? But they decided they want it and made that decision in 1999, and they spent the last 10, 12 years deciding what the model would be and what the training would be. And now they're rocketing ahead. So our little consultations on the side are becoming irrelevant. I mean, not that they, we've broken relationships with them or anything like that, but we were there for a window of opportunity that's now no longer there. So, again, take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. And we're not done there. I mean, there are other things that we can do to help, but that particular opportunity is closing down. All right. So now I'm going to go through a fair number of slides pretty quickly and just kind of give you an overview of some of the places we've been and and some of the things we're trying to do and what it kind of looks like. And so, as I told the ones who came in at the very beginning, I'm not trying to irritate you by going through a bunch of pictures real fast, but I know we have a limited amount of time, and I want to leave some time for questions and comments, and and those of you who are already involved in medical education, feel free to share your insights. But we want to enable local uh, medical educators to accomplish their goals. I know I said that already, but that's one of our major goals is to enable them to do that. And so develop relationships. We equip them through educational programs and processes, uh, give them ownership of it, and uh, help them capacity build in their own communities and and help them become self-sustaining in their programs. Uh, This is Kabul, Afghanistan, where... Uh, we've been working since, well, we, our first exploratory trip was 2002, and then we started a training program in 2004 and still going strong. We've probably graduated 20, 25 people uh, through our program, and at least a half a dozen of them who have finished are now working as faculty with us. So this is a little bit of faculty development we're doing in Kabul, teaching them how to teach and teaching the residents how to teach other residents. You know, the second year teach the first year, the third year teach and supervise the second and first years, which is common in our educational system, our residency system, but not in other places. And so helping them get a grasp of how education can go on at every level. Um, Let's kind of flip through. China, similar thing. We have residencies in three places in China. And a fourth that is not officially connected with us, but uh, we're so tightly connected to them relationally that it might as well be a fourth. And this is the program director of that residency in Haikou, Hainan, a big island down south of China. 
She and her husband are both family doctors and uh, are Christians and uh, have been key people for us in working in China in terms of networking with officials and that sort of thing. And they're they're doing a great job training Chinese doctors in a Chinese program. Uh, Again, Beijing up there in the corner, back in Haiko, Xinyang, and Macau. And each of these settings uh, allows different opportunities. In Beijing, we don't have a long-term missionary. We're not working with long-term missionaries. We're working with with Capital Medical University, which is uh, the the medical school that has been assigned by the Ministry of Health to design uh, or or to decide the model of general practice for the country and then to design the training program. And we've we've had a collaborative uh, or a joint conference uh, for the last seven years. I guess it'll be seven years this year in their eighth eighth, uh, conference together. And what we've been doing is training specialists who are going to receive generalist residents in their departments as they rotate through for training. And the specialists don't have a clue what family practice is. And these, these people have, coming, have been coming from those pilot programs I mentioned earlier, those 30 or 40 pilot programs, and now there are 620 of them. They're not pilot anymore. Uh, for training, to know what a family doctor is and what of their knowledge base are they supposed to share with a general practice doctor when they rotate through. And so that was our goal, uh, to, to help them figure that out. Down here, this is back in Haiko, where we're just doing some medical talks with uh, general practitioners in the hospital that she's working in. Um, this is up in Shenyang, where we are, where we, and this is a residency program, the residency in Shenyang, where we're, uh, which was a model that the, the Chinese were looking at uh, for several years, and then Macau, where it's, which is a former Portuguese colony and has uh, a tremendous amount of freedom, including spiritual freedom, to share and teach uh, from a Christian perspective. So different situations that allow different degrees of freedom uh, to talk about our faith and what we can do with the individuals we're working with. Kazakhstan up here, uh, it's a very small program. Those three folks I'm with are the only people who have gone through the program so far, and they've stayed on in the clinic to be uh, uh, clinic physicians, so it's a Christian clinic, uh, but the training has kind of slowed down as far as new doctors go. Uh, Albania, uh, again Albania, and, no, pardon me, Kosovo, and uh, Kyrgyzstan, where the retreat for Christian doctors, which we're not able to do anymore, and and the Christians aren't able to do anymore. So conferences, consultations, retreats, um, just we give lectures, we do workshops, uh, we do social events to get to know people. And these, this is kind of in the context of short-term missions, but working with long-termers as well. Um, so just a list of possible topics. In a family medicine, we cover every organ system, male, female, young, and old. So we have quite a number of options of lecture topics, and with workshops, uh, especially medical students like practical skills because most medical students in uh, countries that we go to don't get hands-on experience, so they love to do suturing stuff or maybe take a manic and do shoulder dystocia or whatever, interpreting x-rays. They respond very positively to this kind of, of um, teaching, but it's true also in the residencies. When they graduate uh, from, from you know, like a medical school in Afghanistan, uh, we've done medical conferences. Uh, in addition to the residency program, we've done medical conferences in the medical school in Kabul, and have had on a couple of occasions graduating students. They're going to graduate, you know, like two months from the point we give our conference, and they come up and say, "And these are these are last year students. Can you please come back and teach us how to do a physical examination?" And they're about to go out and be the main doctor in a district hospital. So that's scary. So when they come to our our residencies, like in Kabul. And they actually get to do stuff. You know, they actually have their hands on patients and learn how to do these procedures. It's a tremendous difference for them. It makes a tremendous difference in the kind of work they do as physicians. And for that matter, just one other comment about the the models. Every every country is a little bit different. If, you know, uh, most of you are probably from America here, and you know we have our own model of family medicine. But other countries have different models. You know, in America, we work in the hospital, we do OB, we do a lot of procedures in the clinic. In, the, in Great Britain, uh, they train in the hospital, but basically they work outpatient only. They, don't, they do prenatal care, but not OB, and very few office procedures. And yet they have a central role in their medical system. It's a different system. So each place we work in has a different set of uh, procedures that they can do, different environments in which they work, and we tailor the training to fit the local setting and maybe to stretch it a little bit, maybe to give them a few ideas about what they could do uh, if, they, if they were willing to receive the training or to give the training on the part of the medical educators.
Well, just one more thing on that one here. Like, so in this country, very few family doctors would do C-sections. Some do, but not a very big percentage. All of our graduates do C-sections in this program. And most of them will learn how to do hysterectomies because if they're out in the boondocks and, uh, and they have a C-section go bad and they can't stop the bleeding, they need to know how to do a hysterectomy. They also do appendectomies, gallbladders, and some other, other abdominal things. And so they, their, their range of procedures is more or is wider or greater than we would do here in the U.S. So some of the people we work with, Indonesia, both of these are in China. Uh, medical students tend to be very open and interested in, in uh, what a foreigner might have to say and different ways of doing things. Um, and then Kabul, some doctors there. This is uh, Uzbekistan and Mongolia. Uh, and then Tajikistan. Um, and again, I don't know that we could do these same things again now. These are, these are like in the late 90s, and some of those are pictures in er, late 90s and early 2000. Um, in those particular countries, I don't know that we'd be able to do some of these conferences. So again, take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. We still go back to these countries. We work with Christians kind of in a low-key way and uh, try to assist them in their skill developments and all that. And, and if we do something spiritual, it's uh, almost like in an apartment or in a, you know, someone's room because they, they are uh, not allowed to have open public meetings. Um, we don't have residencies in every country I'm mentioning here, by the way. I'm, I'm kind of flipping back and forth between short-term trips and long-term work. And uh, we do pay attention to administrators and department heads and uh, hospital heads because... Uh, they are gatekeepers for medical students and practitioners and in, in many cases, not every case, but many cases. And so if we don't have favor with them, this is uh, in uh, Kazakhstan, and they call them rectors, which is basically the medical school president. Um, if we don't have favor with them, we can't teach the students. We can't teach the students. There's no relationship development, or at least on a, very, it would be on a much smaller scale. Um, and so that would limit the ministry we would have. By the way, that's tea, I think. I don't know if it's white rice wine. I think it's tea we're toasting with, if it bothers anybody. Um, so anyway, and uh, of course, even apart from the issue of being gatekeepers, uh, we want to share Christ with them too. We want to uh, give them a chance to know about the Lord. It's interesting thinking about these folks. Um, you know, here's a fellow. He's a Kazakh, uh, grew up in the Soviet Union, uh, officially atheistic country. To be in his position, he would have had to follow the communist line. You know, he would not have been promoted to that position if he was not a, uh, adhering to the communist, there is no God line. And it's similar in China. Not in every case, but it is. So here is a guy that now the Soviet Union's broken up. Uh, what he was used to is gone. And he's hearing the gospel. Uh, it's a neat opportunity. Um, Again, more consultations. Um, and, and, and our consultations, this, again, this is short-term, are both with secular and missionary programs. We can work with ministries of health, medical schools, and hospital family medicine departments to do faculty development, curriculum development, program development, working with specialists, how the GP department works with specialists, and um, design rotations, educational rotations for the general practice residents. We can help them do that as a service to them. And those who are missionaries doing family medicine training, again, we can come alongside and do all those things as well as help them incorporate the spiritual dimension. How do you disciple your residents? How do you evangelize? How do you get the most out of the training you have with these folks you're working with, whether they're Christian or non-Christian? Um, we do have a spiritual curriculum. And in, in some countries, you can just use the whole thing, just incorporate it into the program, and it can be openly used. In Aswan, Egypt, the, uh, one of our graduates is an Egyptian and started a residency in 2009 in March, so it'll be four years this coming March. All of his residents so far have been Coptic Christians, and they're all very much born-again, uh, on-fire Christians, and so they want to serve the Lord. They, some of them do electives in Sudan, working in clinics in the Sudan among Nubian uh, patients who are very poor. There's Nubians in the area that they're working in as well. Some, one of them at least has gone to Yemen to work with a missionary doctor there as an elective and part of her training. And so they can use the spiritual curriculum in this particular residency, even in a Muslim country, because of the environment they're in. Other countries, Afghanistan, well, it's a whole different story. And uh, the best we can do openly is have an agreed-upon set of character qualities. So when we recruit and, and, and let people know 
that there are X number of openings available for the next class, we may get 80 or 100 or 120, depending on the year, applications for six spots. And we look at their academic record, but we also look and we also interview them and look at their character. And are, and are they willing to agree with these seven points that we have? And it has to do with uh, no discrimination of patients, uh, giving service irregardless of ability to pay, respect for your colleagues, uh, nursing staff, other doctors, uh, younger and older on the, on the pecking order scale or higher and lower on the pecking scale. Uh, and, and so we get a, a bunch of good doctors who they are Muslim. None of them are Christians. But we can work with them and, and in that context, have a, a relational witness with them. And uh, I've been impressed with these, these uh, Afghan doctors. They really have a heart for their own people. They really want to see their health care improve. They know the statistics in their own country are terrible, although they have been improving over the last 10 years. And they're not looking for a way out. They also, we, we teach these guys in English because the resources are in English, basically. So they're not, And they could use that to uh, create a link to get out. And, uh, but they're not trying to do that. I'm, I'm impressed with them. And, and uh, as I said earlier, uh, four of the graduates are now, have now stayed on with us as faculty in our current program and two in the previous program. So anyway, uh, consultations, you know, sit down and talk with hospital directors, and here's how you do it, here's how you plan, what do you, you want to do, can we help you? Same place. Some of our residents who went with us on this particular trip. Um, and then in these different residencies, I mentioned we have seven different residencies. We have created a network among them so that they can link together and learn from each other. Uh, they're very different environments. Again, if you think of China and then Afghanistan, there's almost no comparison. Politically, religiously, socially, economically, there's just no comparison, yet our goals are the same. Train well-qualified doctors and try to reach them spiritually. But there are lessons that they can get from each other and and share and and learn from each other. Uh, Maybe there's some resources they can share with each other. So curriculum is shared, ideas are shared, how to deal with particular problems are shared. In some extent, personnel are shared, you know, teachers going from one place to the other and doing some teaching. Um, And then some of the patients we're seeing in different places. Looks like that got blocked. Anyway, what else is here? You know, our, our target audience is, are the, is or are the healthcare professionals. We are trying to help them accomplish their goals, help train them so that they can reach patients. But secondarily, we do, of course, work with patients. We model what we do. We see patients with the residents. Uh, we precept the preceptors. You know, most of the faculty in these programs are new faculty. Most of the program directors have not been program directors in the U.S. They go over there and they help start a program. They become a program director. And so we go over there and, and observe and watch and give them feedback and help them do their job as a faculty member or a program director. And we'll sit and watch the interaction with the fa- other residents or with the residents and other faculty and see how they handle administrative problems and give them feedback and give them ideas. Uh, and with the end result being that hopefully the patients get better care and uh, do better. But our target is the healthcare professional. And other specialists come with us. Uh, we, you know, as family doctors, uh, we, are, uh, we are dependent to some extent on other specialists helping in, in our training. And so when we go overseas, we can bring them with us. And we invite them to go both for long-term and short-term work. Other healthcare professionals are equally needed. Nursing is, a, I would say, a relatively untapped area. There's, I don't know, if, at least as many nursing students and probably more nursing students out there as there are medical students. And I, as I go around, I don't see anywhere near as much effort being put into reaching them as I do into in people reaching medical students and doctors. So if you're interested in nursing education, it's a wide open field. <clears throat> And we've talked a little bit about spiritual conferences. Again, this is totally dependent on the context, the, the country, the timing, the opportunity. And uh, those are just some sample talks. Um, that's Egypt, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and all the countries we go to. And more of this. So uh, we'll give testimonies, uh, prayer for people, do follow-up, preaching. Let's see here. Skits, people like drama. Uh, the guy with the silver hair there is John Crouch. He's our, our program 
boss, and he played the role of God in one of the skits. And his wife says he wears the robes at home. I don't know. but <laughs> so, I, don't know, I think it's gone to his head. <laughs> uh, whoops, I should let that run through. But, uh, okay. If you have a chance to do retreats in the places that you go, do them because people re- respond. You know, these are, these are retreats for Christians. Oh, that's out of order there. Sorry about that. Um, but you can build up people uh, in, in their faith and help them see medicine. Now, these are not all residents of ours, of course, but these are Christians that we have met uh, in Kazakhstan and Central Asia. Uh, they're either in medical school or have finished medical school. Just want to encourage them in their faith, first of all, in their growth as a Christian, but also to take advantage of their opportunities as doctors in their part of the world to use medicine as ministry and to understand how to do that. Maybe some of you have seen or gone through the saline solution and you know those kinds of principles, you know, recognizing opportunities with individual patients and uh, encouraging them to be salt and light in their world and to, to learn to discern and, and understand God's leading for them as he would lead them into ministries of their own. So we have residencies in these cities, three in China. The fourth is uh, unofficial but very close, Egypt, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, and East Africa. And I'm going to really fly through this. Sorry. Um, anyway, maybe don't have time. These are these, I, I put these here. Pieces, these are the places I went most recently. This last month I was in these three countries, uh, Kazakhstan, Egypt, and Afghanistan. So these are, I want you to, to know, these are ongoing processes right now. These are uh, things we're doing now and, and that others uh, could do now if, as the Lord leads them to do it. But uh, helping them in their training programs, helping them as faculty member. And this is a bit exciting to me. This is a, a Kazakhstani pediatric neurologist who has linked up in her city of Astana, in Kazakhstan, to do a rehab program for families with handicapped family members, either young or old. And, by the way, if any of you are physical therapists or occupational therapists, there's a tremendous need for you out there. Very little is done in, those er- in that area of therapy uh, in most of the places that we go and maybe that you're thinking about going. So she's become an expert in that. Um, th- the exciting part is she wants to work with us in Afghanistan. So she wants to go down there and, and teach pediatrics and neurology and rehab, but she also wants to expand her own clinical skills along the lines of primary care. So she's going to also be learning in the residency as she's at the same time she's teaching. So that's a new thing for us and the other organizations that are involved with us in making this happen, InterServe and Morningstar Development, which is based in Kabul. So I took a little bit of time to visit her. Uh, this is her city. And I don't know, Kazakhstan, the capital, almost looks like Disneyland. It, this Ten years ago, this didn't exist. It was just like a, a little, not little, but 250,000 Russian Soviet, Soviet Union-style city, and they just transformed it to make it the capital. They've got a lot of oil money. Um, Aswan, Egypt. You know, it's, uh, Egypt is kind of militarized. Uh, that's how you make sand angels there. That's not snow. <laughs> and yes, that is me diving off the rock into the Nile. All right, I've got to say this. What do you call a person who swims in the Nile River? A person in denial. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Whoops. And uh, this is the graduate I mentioned to you. He's an Egyptian. He went through our program, I think finished in 2006, I believe. These are two current residents. This is this is a lady who graduated last March and stayed on as an attending in the hospital and a faculty member. This is a guy that worked in Yemen for four years but had to evacuate for safety reasons. He's kind of joined us. But So here's a long-term project. This is a great program. These are all Christians. They want to serve the Lord, both whether it's in Egypt or Sudan or wherever the Lord would lead them. And it's a three-year program. It's going strong. Um, and, and the short-term team can come in and help them and encourage them. We, t- we took call for them. We t- did the teaching load for 10 days for them, saw patients with the residents and did precepting, that sort of thing, and uh, did some uh, lecturing or roundtable medical topics with the residents so we could come in and, and give them a break, basically, and talk with him. You know, How is the program going? What can we do for you? How can we support you? So both long-term and short-term medical education can link up and, and work together. And that's just some details about him. Um, this is Aswan. It's a, the Egyptians in Cairo would call it Redneck City, but it's a beautiful place. You can, the river, the Nile there is clean enough. You can swim in it. It's, and the program is based in a 100-year-old German mission hospital. 
which gives them the freedom to do all these things that they're doing. They work, uh, Nubians, I mentioned them, they're kind of a population around them, very few Christians. Only, these guys only know five, but they have a clinic with them. They're doing medical outreaches that get them into their homes and, and uh, enable them to meet them and have relationships. And we happened to be there at the beginning of this diabetes project, and this was the introductory meeting with leaders of the Nubian community, and that was kind of fun to be there for that. That's our graduate with one of the Nubian elders. And this is a neat thing. Uh, I mentioned we have programs in different countries. Uh, these two guys here, this is an American missionary. This is a Chinese doctor. Uh, the Chinese church is new to missions, and they've sent out missionaries, and a lot of them have come back burned out and, and defeated, more or less, because they haven't known how to do cross-cultural missions. They've seen missionaries, but they haven't had to do it themselves, and a lot of them have made mistakes. Like, you know, Chinese restaurants are everywhere. Or they'll go and open a Chinese restaurant in a Muslim country and serve pork. <laughs> doesn't work. <laughs> or the Chinese like massages, foot massages, neck, and everything. Again, in a Muslim country, a massage parlor has the wrong connotation. So they've made silly mistakes like that just because of being naive and, and new at it. But these guys... Um, very much have a vision for reaching Muslims, not only in China, but in the Middle East. And maybe some of you heard the phrase, back to Jerusalem. You know, the Chinese church wants to close the loop and bring the gospel back to Jerusalem, and they feel like they're going to do it. You know, the Chinese church go that way and do it. These guys want to participate in that, and we're able to be a link for them to take them on a short-term trip and, want to, and take them to some of our established places and get their feet wet in the Muslim world and see what it's like before going in, uh, out and crashing on their own. Not only what it's like visually and, and all that, but what it takes to learn a language or to learn cross-cultural uh, principles and uh, language learning and uh, good strategies and all that sort of thing. Uh, so I'm excited about that, and I think they are too. That was the first of what I hope will be many trips with these guys going with us. This is Jackie from China and uh, giving a, uh, a talk in, uh, in the chapel there at that um, hospital compound in Aswan and uh, uh, has a great vision for helping the Chinese church create the sending structures they need to be successful in sending out missionaries, and I'm excited about that. And hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll see that happen. And then finally, I'm almost out of time, I guess. Uh, Kabul, again, we've been training since 2004. Uh, it is a struggle. And one of the mistakes that we've made is not putting together a large enough team to, to carry the load. The current program director is an American who's having a tough time. Uh, Time-wise, he doesn't have enough time to do everything he's required to do. It's a tough place to live, and he's struggling. <clears throat> but the program itself is still functioning. The, the, the Afghan faculty who I mentioned are teaching. Uh, they could be teaching at a higher level than they are, but, but because their program director is struggling, they're not getting enough supervision, but, they, but teaching is still taking place. And the, there's, I think, 15 residents between three different classes. Maybe 40% are female, the rest are guys. And uh, they are excited about what they're doing. And uh, anyone wants to go to Afghanistan, we could use your help. Uh, that's the old King's Palace that got bombed up, and they thought maybe about turning it into a museum, but it's too structurally damaged to be of any use, so it just sits there. And that's the guest house we stayed in. And this is one of our graduates in a, a remote clinic in Kabul seeing some patients. Let's see here. So anyway, some pictures from the program. And this is the residency. These are the residents. Uh, one of the ladies who was on call the night before giving a morning report, maybe discussing a case. This fellow here is... Uh, Filipino-American pediatrician who has been working in Kabul for quite a while. He works half-time in our hospital, half-time in the other hospital. And again, this is an ongoing program, long-term medical education project. Short-termers come in and help. Uh, this, in this particular case, was primarily aimed at the faculty, doing faculty development. You've got these four relatively young Afghan faculty. They're learning how to teach. But the focus this time was how do they as faculty make the program successful, not just in terms of individual teaching at bedside or in the clinic, but designing the program. How, what is their role in designing the program, making sure all the different aspects are functioning well, uh, evaluations of residents, evaluations of themselves, of the program. Is the program turning out the kinds of doctors they intended when they first started teaching? Uh, you know, the kinds of things a faculty is supposed to do. They're, they're, this is new to them, so we come in and help equip them, and they're excited about that because it kind of frees them up to be the faculty members they need to be and want to be, 
And, it's, it's, and, and uh, the question I put to them, what if, if this program director, and, and we're all doing this all together, was no longer here, how would you make this program continue? How would you make it succeed? How would you make it continue on? The unfortunate part is they're not Christians, so the spiritual part would be lost at this point if that were to happen. But medically, uh, they're getting the point. And uh, short-term and long-term work together to do that. And here's that American guy showing them a, an exam. And these are three of the four faculty. The fourth was missing. Missing. They're in an awkward situation, too. Uh, these are great guys. This guy, as you might guess just by looking at the picture, is by far the most devout Muslim of the group. Very neat guy. I mean, I love his heart. Um, when he graduated, he, his village is about a year, uh, a year, an hour and a half outside of Kabul. It might as well be a year and a half outside of Kabul, I guess. But it's an hour and a half outside of Kabul, and he wanted to start practicing in his village. But when he got there, because he had been trained by some Westerners, even though there was only a handful, he was started receiving death threats. So he moved his whole family back to Kabul. It's our gain, their loss. I mean, he's a great faculty member and really uh, is very interested in seeing people trained and patients taken care of. But it, uh, it's a tough situation for anybody working with foreigners right now uh, because of the extremists who want to get rid of any foreign influence. And let's see. So... Medical education missions. It's a strategic method of reaching and serving the lost in most places of the world. Uh, it's a door opener. It's a true um, way to serve uh, the needs of people and demonstrate the compassion of Christ. So just about out of time. Any questions? Yes, sir. What's, uh, I'm a R2 right now um, in family medicine. Sure. Uh, residency. What would you say is the... Uh, you know, there may not be one best path, but what would you say is, is an ideal path for someone who wants to be involved in like in a mm -hmm. residency program in a creative access country right. in terms of fellowships or working or just you know jumping in with something like disease? Are you talking about pre-field or once you get there or like, you know, preparation like, you know, I or graduate in a year and a half? Yeah. You know, what would be the best thing? What, what's well, there's a lot of ways I could answer that, and there's a number of different ways that are legitimate. Uh, on the one hand, you could say, well, you don't necessarily need any further training like an OB track or surgical track because what you learn here may or may not apply to the place you go. So if you know where you're going to go and you know you need certain procedural skills, then get those before you go. If you don't know where you're going to go at this point, well, uh, there's no reason to just hang around and keep getting skills. But uh, you need to... You need to uh, um, know how to work cross-culturally. You need to know uh, the people you're going to go with, who you're going to serve with. You know, who you choose to serve with is, is important. So what mission agency and all that sort of thing. Uh, and then any specific preparation for a particular country you're going to go to. Uh, beyond that, I'm, it's, it's very specific. It's hard to give you a good pat answer to that question because it's so broad. But you really, if you know where you're going to go, then you can tailor it to that place. If you don't, then I just say keep going forward. Work on uh, identifying a mission agency or sending group that you want to work with and you feel good about working with. Uh, support raising, that means personal prayer support as well as the finances. Um, learning how to uh, work cross-culturally, that's very important. Um, I don't know if I can say much more. To find the place first. That and would be helpful if you, yeah, yeah. Skills. Yeah, okay. that, yeah that, that makes That's helpful. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, and the lady next to you is from Kyrgyzstan, too. So. Right. And I think I met you in Almaty. Maybe so. so. <laughs> um, I now have a Taiwan young doctor, a pulmonologist. Pulmonologist? Yeah. He's almost finishing 13 years. But the hard thing is now in the field, it's hard to find a long-term to receive him. Mm. Uh, like this young person. So he's a pulmonologist here in the States. He's now in Taiwan. Oh, he's in Taiwan. He's thinking about going to the Okay, okay. But then the difficulty now is in the field where yeah. there's somebody to receive it. Right. Like he's he trying to find the location. Right. Now, um, well, you can start with the known entities. You know, we have half a dozen residencies of our own that have connections with the medical systems where they are that if he were to email them and ask, are there any opportunities, can you, can you put me in touch with someone, they could do that. Uh, other people that you would know in Central Asia, are you from Kyrgyzstan, did you say? You're from Kyrgyzstan? I'm yeah. A therapist. Okay, you're a therapist. And so the local folks that you know, 
uh, would be a, another source to say, is there a, a role that this pulmonologist could play, maybe teaching other pulmonologists in Kyrgyzstan? So it's networking and relationships and following the leads that you have. And nothing magical about it. I wish there was. But uh, it's just kind of following up on leads and seeing where the Lord leads and how, what doors open up. Well, well, I'm not sure he'd want to practice outside his training. (laughs) That could be risky in other countries. It would certainly be risky in this country. Uh, I think you have to respect local standards of care and qualification. You can't, if if I'm a family doctor, I just can't go and show up and be a surgeon, you know. So he, as a pulmonologist, would have to, uh, I would recommend that he stay within his scope of training and not try to go too far beyond that and therefore connect with other pulmonologists, his colleagues, in the places he's interested in going. And to do that, people like yourself or missionaries in Central Asia that could at least start uh, the process of finding leads. Meaning that it's not necessary you can find a pulmonologist on the field. Right. But it could be... Uh, it could be the connection could be anybody, but that connection would have to know how to connect with other people locally who are pulmonologists. Well, I can talk with you after. Hey, okay. Is there a clearinghouse? Somebody know, have a, their thumb on yeah. what's going on out there? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I know. You know what your yeah, I know what we're, influence is. Exactly. Um, that's a, an issue that uh, I don't know if you know of Dr. Bruce Dahlman, but he's trying to organize a clearinghouse within family medicine circles for the globe and because uh, there is not one for family medicine worldwide where everybody knows or has a place to go to find out where other, other people are doing in the bigger picture of all specialties, I have no idea. Maybe Chris Starr, they, they have their thumb or their finger on uh, tent-making opportunities globally, so maybe they might be a source for uh, getting information like that, a clearinghouse of sorts. But I don't think there's any one place that you can get all information unless someone else knows something. I, I don't know of anything like that. I think we are out of time. Uh, if you have questions, I'm glad to stay around and, and talk. But thank you for coming. I appreciate your attendance and uh, your attention.